runners and kayakers um, and, and people who are active talk about flow and that sense of actually just realizing that you're in, in the movement of something else, mm. that something else is drawing you, that, that body and mind and spirit become one with your surroundings. And I think actually, I think that is life. Hello and welcome to the Sanctuary First podcast. I'm James Cathcart. This is the second in a three-part series I'm doing on mind, body and breath. Over these episodes, I'm chatting to some experts about how our minds, bodies and breath interact in that pattern of tissue and synapses and bits of bone and soul that happen to make you, you. In episode one, I talked to physiotherapist Claire Young about the body, and in the final episode, we'll get into breath. But for this midpoint of the series, we are focusing on the mind. Thinking about the mind can be notoriously tricky, as we have to use our minds to do it. It's like trying to open a melon with another melon. Tricky, and it can get messy. For this episode, I wanted to think specifically about how our minds help and hinder us in releasing our potential. To get by day to day, we create a composite image of ourselves that helps us physically and emotionally to navigate around the world. It's a kind of synthesis of what's reflected back to us, from sensory cues, from our subconscious, from loved ones, from the society that we live in. Our minds help us tune into and inhabit our bodies and animate them with breath. But they can also produce screeching feedback. Because our minds, like melons, are large and ungainly. Our brains are so big and so complicated that they're not satisfied with merely solving problems, they like to create ones too. Wires can and do get crossed as we try to bring something like an identity together from all these disparate sources. It's all too easy to lose a sense of who we really are in the mix. Cognitive bias is the study of how our secret weapon, our supersized brains, can also be our not-so-secret downfall. We often fail to see what's right in front of us, not because we're not smart enough, but because we're too smart. Before we've even realised it, our mind has raced to find solutions to problems that we haven't even noticed yet. It has to. Life is too fast and features too many hurdles. Sometimes you've just got to leap. These shortcuts can save valuable time, quick snap second judgments, but they can also make us fall short, comically short, as we easily fall for optical illusions, scams, and the narrow-mindedness of our own prejudices. A notable example of cognitive bias is confirmation bias. This is the tendency to overestimate evidence that confirms our own opinions and discredit evidence that contradicts what we believe. If I read an obscure academic article, that claim Jesus was misrecorded in the Gospel of John, and that a more accurate translation of his statement, I am the bread of life, was actually, I am the melon of life, it would give me pause. Not because somebody comparing themselves to a melon is highly bizarre, though it is, but because I'm not a big fan of melons. I tend to find them ultimately underwhelming. The idea of Jesus as the melon of life is something that I find it difficult to get into. 
A melon itself is difficult to get into. It's momentarily refreshing, but then leaves you in a bit of a mess. That idea of Jesus doesn't appeal. Regardless of the evidence provided, I'd go in with a scepticism, not driven by knowledge of Aramaic or Greek or ancient scriptural sources. It would instead be driven by a snack preference. Whereas if I read an alternative article that claimed Jesus had actually said, I am the toast of life, it would resonate deeply for me. As listeners of the last episode will know, I love toast. Surely toast isn't a big step up from bread, I would tell myself. For me, it would make total sense for Jesus, marmalade in hand, to refer to himself as the toast of life. Toast is where texture and temperature and taste come together in a perfect moment of sliced sustenance. What could say more about bringing everything in the universe together than a piece of toast? If Jesus said to me, I am the toast of life, I would know exactly what he was talking about. I love toast. I'm biased. I would read the evidence in a very charitable light, willing it on. Because when something goes straight to your gut, it's hard to ignore the overwhelming feelings and to pay attention to what we're actually looking at. And this applies especially when we're looking in the mirror. The human mind is incredibly flexible and adaptable, able to imagine its way into and out of almost anything. But keeping track of who we are when we struggle to even keep track of the reality around us can be a tall order. Our sense of self is a kind of moving target, often getting lost in the weeds. So in this conversation, I was keen to dig into this idea of the tension between who we are and who we think we are, and even who we are meant to be. How do our bodies give our minds the breathing space to tune in, to find out? Episode 2. The Mind. My guest is Amanda McQuarrie. Amanda is a parish minister in the Church of Scotland, a runner, walker, kayaker, an absolute dynamo. And listener, before we get into it, I have to say, something clicked for me during this following conversation, as you'll hear. Amanda helped me with a complete paradigm shift on how I thought about something. So for paradigm shifts, laughter and heartfelt insights, I'm grateful to Amanda McQuarrie for chatting to me. Because I'm interested in this idea of how our minds help and hinder us in seeing ourselves, I began by asking her about her journey into becoming a minister, which took two decades, several twists and turns, and one hurricane. Not a metaphorical hurricane, an actual hurricane. An actual odgings it's blowing a huli type of hurricane. So here's Amanda telling us about her journey into ministry. It was a long experience. A 20-year experience. I uh, became a Christian when I was about 14 um, through Scripture Union and um, went along to my local church and got involved there and things like that. And then around about when I was 16 and really kind of thinking about what I wanted to do after school, really felt this quite um, strong sense that actually God was asking me to do something and maybe it was ministry. And my own minister at that point and my youth leader both said to me, Oh, man, have you thought about ministry? And, and so these three things were all kind of there. But I was 16 and it was um, the late 1980s. There actually, there were no, I didn't know a female minister. And I knew that I wanted um, 
one of the things I wanted to do was kind of get married and have a family. And, and I didn't see how the two, I'd never seen a woman minister and I wanted that. And mm-hmm. I couldn't quite work out how the two would come together. And I remember um, in my 16 year old angst or 17 year old angst, probably saying to my minister, no, I'm not called to be a preacher. I'm called to be a teacher. I'm going to go and be a, a teacher. I mean, the whole reason for doing the course that I chose was because I wasn't going to be a minister. I mean, it wasn't that well, I was going to be a teacher, it was that I wasn't going to be a minister. And I sat and, you know, I did one, I, so I did um, joint honours in Christianity and Islam. And um, but all of the Christianity courses, obviously, were, were divinity courses with trainee ministers. And I remember doing systematic theology and Christian ethics and practical theology and things like that. And looking around the class and saying, see God, I'm not meant to be a minister because they were all, they were middle-aged, they were my age. <laughs> they, were, they were middle-aged, they had briefcases. I hope none of them are watching this. That's a shame. <laughs> they were so serious. And I just thought, and that's not me. And so God, I'm, I'm mm. not called to be a minister. But it was still there. There was still that sense of, this was what God was asking me to do. And I was, I was fighting it because actually I was there because I wasn't going to do that. Really wasn't finding teaching as kind of fulfilling as, you know, as I thought. And started thinking again, that sense of, you know, I had an awful lot. I, people told me how good the stuff that I did in church was. And, um, you know, how, how good I was at explaining stuff at Bible study and, you know, just different things. And again, my minister said to me, have you ever thought about being a minister? I said, no, I'm not going to be a minister. But actually, in the back of my head by that point, I was probably in my early 20s by that stage, but 23. Started thinking, actually, you know, maybe maybe there is something in this, 23, 24. And so I got, um, I decided that I would get the forms for so, at, in those days selection school. And um, I filled them out and then I chickened out of sending them and they sat in the kitchen for a week or two. And then um, I discovered that I was pregnant with my first child. (laughs) (laughs) And again, it was that sense of, yes, see God, I'm not meant to be a minister because there was no way I could apply for ministry training if I was about to have a baby. And so I kind of put it on a back burner, not consciously, just it just wasn't there. It wasn't kind of present in my thoughts. And so kind of, you know, one child later, two child later, we'd moved church and sitting in a different church. And every Sunday I would sit there really uncomfortably with a finger always poking me, prodding me, going, you could do that. You could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would sit there and I would try and work out where the minister was going to go with the sermon. And I'd think about what I would preach if I was preaching on that passage. And very often I would make the links and, I'd, and, and the voice would just keep saying to me, you could do that. You could do that. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it because I've got young kids. And then I had another one and another one. So by the time I had four children, we had moved out to the, the Western Isles, to the island of Barra. Ah, Barra. White sandy beaches, a turquoise ocean, purple skies. And then there was a hurricane. Oh, yeah. And odgings, it's blowing a hooli type hurricanes. As there often is in the Western Isles. But this, this was quite a big hurricane. And the hurricane came on a Saturday night and by the Sunday morning, the sea, the, the wind had died down, but the sea was still really stormy. And so the ferry that normally brought one of the visiting preachers over from Uist couldn't get there. And I wasn't an elder, but the Kirk session cancelled worship. So I was really annoyed with them. I said, you can't cancel worship. 
Um, because what happens if there's visitors on the island and, and they want to come to church? Okay, the members knew that church wasn't on, but the visitors didn't. They would still turn up at the door. And actually, the weather was fine. You could have led worship. That's what being an elder is. You know, the, the, the session clerk should be able to lead worship in the absence of a minister. <laughs> Imagine me telling them that. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and they kind of, they didn't like me telling them that, but they kind of took it on board as well, because actually it was getting more and more difficult to get a minister. And so I had said to them, well, you know, if you're not going to lead worship, then you need to start up a worship group or something. Anyway, that came back to bite me because a few weeks later, I was going to discuss the session and they came back to me and said, so Amanda, you know how you were telling us we have to start up a worship group? Well, we need someone who can preach and you've got a degree. <laughs> so arm twisted behind the back because I kind of told them what for. You couldn't and, say no at that um, point, could you? I couldn't. I couldn't say no. <laughs> exactly. And so I did. I find myself leading worship, and suddenly it, I did it. And suddenly, all of these things that I had thought I couldn't do. Um, Eric Liddell in the well in the film version, and even in his book, Eric Liddell says, um, "You know, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel God smile." Mm. That was what I sensed when I led worship that day. I sensed all of these bits fall into place and God smiling and saying, oh, for goodness sake, at last <laughs> she's heard me because I actually did it and I loved doing it. I mean, I was nervous. I was nervous as anything, but I loved it. And it kind of felt as though actually this was what I was meant to do. Um, and so that I didn't just do it that one time. I did it whenever we needed someone to do it. And over the course of a year, kind of just more and more that feeling of actually this is this feels oddly right. And I remember going to my assessment conference, and I remember them. I remember the two ministers who were interviewing me saying, "You know, what does Amanda get out of this?" Mm. And I said, "Actually, I get the chance to be fully me." I said, throughout my life, I've worn so many different hats. I've worn the hat of Amanda the teacher. I've worn the hat of Amanda the youth worker. I've worn the hat of Amanda the children's worker. I've worn the hat of Amanda the Bible study leader, the prayer group leader, all these different things, the occasional worship leader. But, but actually, I've still been something else. Mm. Whereas I said, what I've discovered in ministry is that this allows me to be me. Mm. I don't have to be anybody else. I don't. God's not asking me to go out and learn how to be something new. God's asking me to be who I've always been mm -hmm. and is calling me to be that in the fullest sense. And that, that for me was, I, that's still what I would say being a minister is about. It's about being called to be fully me and God equipping me and, and giving me what I need to do that. Um, and it's such a privilege. Uh, you know, and I still, I still remember going home from assessment conference, going from St Andrews to Barra. And I remember sitting on that bus and they don't give you any clue. As you're leaving an assessment conference, you have no idea whether or not you, they're going to accept you or not. You have to wait for the post to come in. And I remember going home in the bus and I just had this real sense of God smiling at me. And I thought, you know, no matter what happens now, I've done, I've done what God asked me to do and I've done the best that I can. I was me. I was fully me. And if, if, if that's not who they're looking for, then that's okay. I'll go and I'll find... I'll find a way to be fooling me. Um, but a few days later, the letter came and said that they had accepted me. I was struck there when you said about the hats, you know, the metaphor about wearing these different hats, but then you never said uh, that you were wearing the ministry hat because it's not a hat, presumably. You know, if you are being you, then there's no need for a hat. You're there yeah, bareheaded and just... Yeah, 
and yeah, take all these hats off. I don't have to be all these different things anymore. I'm now, I can just be me. So in this episode, um, we're thinking particularly about the mind, you know, mind, body and breath, but thinking a bit about the mind. And so in terms of, you know, reflecting on that experience of call, in what ways do you think your mind helped? And in what ways do you think it hindered? I'm interested in this idea and when you said about the the hats again, this idea of how we see ourselves, you know, and this sense of how we build up a sense of who we are that's kind of reflected sometimes from other people or I guess it has to be reflected from from other people at least to to begin with you know because it sounds like did you say you were 16 when this first you first sort of saw this sense that you could do it but then there were other things that got in the way and barriers so so kind of looking at that lens from from the point of view of the mind and in what ways do you think it helped and what ways do you think it hindered I think it hindered probably for 20 years because the mindset was that actually that wasn't for me for lots of different reasons. You know, I didn't see myself, I couldn't see myself in my own mind's eye as a minister because the picture I had of a minister was of a man in a grey suit with a dog collar. And and as a 16-year-old girl, that really, that was, and it wasn't me. Um, and so, so in my mind's eye, I didn't fit the picture. And so for me then, that just meant I'm not doing that. And when I went to when I went to university and I went to new college, that kind of yeah, there were one or two girls, women, young women, a bit older than me. Um, but it still didn't make me think that actually this was something for me because actually the majority of people were older. They were they were kind of yeah, they were probably looking at a, a second career, their ch- mm. you know, maybe their children, you know, they aged in a sense that I ended up going back at. But, but again, in my mind's eye, I didn't fit that picture. Mm. Um, and it's also about the narrative that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And quite often that's the narrative of the voices that we grow up with. Yes. Um, and the things that we hear. And so the mind can play tricks on us. They're lies, but we believe them because actually we don't know any different. Mm. And so, you know, again, there's that sense of you need to, you know, you need to be really clever to go and be a minister or something like that. And and I didn't think of myself as clever. I mean, I, yeah, I did okay. I got hires at school and I went to university. So there was obviously some intelligence there. But it just, and I didn't, I didn't think I was holy enough. And, you know, mm. all these things I know now are absolute nonsense. Um, but they mattered as a 16, 17, 18-year-old. And even, even into my, you know, even into my, my 20s when, again, it came up um, that, you know, that sense of call got really strong again. But, again, I couldn't, I still had no real experience of women ministers, certainly not women ministers with young families. And I couldn't see how the two those two parts, how I could be a mum and a minister. Um, and so, again, it's the narrative that we tell ourselves that, no, that's not for us. Um, mm. you know, and I, So even for 10, probably for the last 10 years of that, I thought, okay, but I, wouldn't be any, I could do the preaching, yeah, but I'd be no use at the pastoral stuff because I had this, I remember um, in my first placement, saying to my supervisor I don't know what a pastoral visit is and she's right come and shadow me for a day and so I went on three different visits with her and I thought a pastoral visit was some magical thing that kind of something really holy happened in. <laughs> and I remember going with her for these three visits and after each visit she made me really kind of um, dissect the visits with her and go through everything that happened and talk about 
my understanding of it and things. And at the end of the day, she says, what have you learned? And I says, well, none of them really were like, nothing magical happened in them. It was just normal. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and suddenly, the again, the penny drops. And you're like, you could do that. You know, you, you, you could do that. There's nothing here that's that's kind of alien to you. At this point in my life, I look back and I think about the different parts of my life. And I think, you know, actually, God prepared me in every part of my life for what I do now. The job that I had the summer I left school when I was 18, if I didn't get the grades for university, my plan B was to go and be a nurse. And so I worked that year in Strathcarran Hospice as a, a nursing assistant, a nursing auxiliary. Um, and, and, you know, that was my training for mm. pastoral visiting. Wow. One of the most holy moments I've ever experienced touched me to my core. I was 18 and I was standing at um, a bedside of somebody holding their hand while the nurse dressed their, you know, their wound on, the, on their back, a big open wound, a big open mm. sore. And they were dying of cancer. Um, and I stood there and I held her hand and I spoke to her gently and she, says, she said to me, would you read from my Bible for me? And she asked me to read the 23rd Psalm well, while mm. she was having her, her back dressed. And, you know, that, as an 18-year-old, that was such a privilege to be asked to stand there and do that. And that, for me, now looking back, that was God preparing me for ministry. Because, actually, I don't think I was meant to be a minister then. I think, you know, in the fullness of time, I think I was probably trained and, and became a minister and ordained at the right time. What are things that you think that, that helped you or that, that might help others to kind of reclaim their narrative? You know, if, if at the moment they're not at the later stage of the chapter where things are coming together and you're feeling the sense of, of things coming together, but, but you're perhaps earlier on and you're not, you're not really sure what the thread is. How do you think we hold on to who we are through everything and that story? I think it gets easier as you get older because you have you begin to have a sense of who you are and what what makes you tick. Mm. And I feel, you know, I remember as as a younger woman, I was very um driven and I had a had a I had a plan, I had a five-year plan, I had a 10-year plan. I knew exactly what I was going to be doing by the time I was 30. And by the time I was 35, I'd done it all. I had done, I had I'd finished my plan and you sit there and you go, well, what am I going to do now then? <laughs> um, but actually since then what I've discovered is I don't know you know runners and kayakers um, and, and people who are active talk about flow and that sense of actually just realising that you're in, in the movement of something else mm. that something else is drawing you that, that body and mind and spirit become one with your surroundings and I think actually I think that is life um, and it's that sense of of letting go and actually just being in the moment and allowing the moment to tell you what's right in a sense. Um, people people laugh at me because I say, you know, I, so it, when I when I know that I'm in the right place at the right moment at the right time, it's kind of like there's a good hum in my head. <laughs> it's just this sense of of just yeah. You know, it's it's just a good feeling, and that sense of um, of peace, of contentment, 
Um, and I, I, I'm probably not answering your question, James. But, no, no, I think that's brilliant. You know, I think it's just, yeah, I spent so much of my life beating myself up for not being who I thought I was meant to be. Hmm. And then discovering actually who, who I was all along was who I was meant to be. Mm. And so forget all these other things. Stop making myself have to be like somebody else or or be this other thing that other people think I should be. Actually, just be you. But I think when you're younger, particularly as a woman, I think when you're younger, that's really, really hard because society tells you who you should be. Um, the media tells you who you should be. Your family tells you who you should be. You know, all these conflicting views of who you should be, it's very, very hard to actually just be yourself and to learn who you are yourself. And I think it does get easier as you get older, as you begin to, to discover your own strengths. Just find out what makes you tick. It becomes much easier to ignore the voices um, who are speaking rubbish. And I think as well, it becomes... One of the things that I learned was, and I suppose it comes from a faith perspective, for me it became really important to actually think, but who does God say that I am? Mm. because I don't need to believe the lies that other people tell me that tell me that I'm not good enough or that tell me that um, I don't, I don't look right. Or, you know, I don't, I don't wear the right clothes or whatever. I don't need to listen to them. Actually, who does God say that I am? God tells me that I'm cherished. God tells me that I'm loved. God tells me that I'm the apple of his eye. And actually that's all I need to know. That's all I need to hold on to is that actually I'm enough. Um, and I don't need to listen to those other voices. That's fantastic, Amanda. And, and I think it's really telling that uh, when I asked the question, I was saying, what can you do to, to reclaim your narrative? How can you kind of grab it and say, this is me and where I'm going? And, and, and kind of what I'm hearing, you know, from the wisdom of what you're saying is maybe just see where you're going, you know, <laughs> like, like, accept who you are, you know, get to know who yeah. you are and then and you know you kind of use that um you were saying about flow state and and almost like a sense of a river you know find find the pull find the current um yeah. rather than you know so i i was um <laughs> you know from my vantage point was thinking about this idea of you know, grabbing the narrative and reclaiming it and and what have you but maybe that's because um yeah i don't know i'm i'm in a in a different stage and, and maybe i need it's to also about find the current kind of stopping though and looking back at seeing and seeing the journey that you've come and the different threads that come into that and sometimes we learn so much about ourselves when we actually take the time to stop and reflect and look back mm. and we begin to see the different themes and narratives that comes out of that and we learn our narrative um, and we can choose we can choose how to frame the narrative we can actually choose to let other people frame it for us and frame it in the ways that they want to or we can look back and say, well, no, actually, look how strong I was to come through that. Or look look at that part of my life and what I did there. And, and so we can choose how to how to share that narrative with others and how what, what to speak of ourselves when we voice ourselves. I think I'm growing <laughs> during this conversation. <laughs> I think I'm... <laughs> You've helped me age up. You've helped me level up. That's good. That's good. I feel... I feel more uh, more grounded already. That's great. Um, so you were saying about uh, running there. You touched on running. And I know that you are a runner. You also do yoga and I think quite a lot of walking. And you're quite, quite an active person. And so I was thinking, how how has the sort of 
how have these active things that you're doing fed into your faith? Is there ways in which um, your faith has been challenged or expanded or in some way nourished or, or developed through um, these more physical pursuits? I think we often have a, a tendency to get quite cerebral and to think it's all up here and in the mind, but we're real human beings, right? Who have real human bodies. Um, for me, they really nourish my faith. Um, I am a really active person. But one of the ways that I can be most mindful is when I'm walking. Mm. Actually, that's where I, where I be, <laughs> where I am most in my being is when I'm walking. Um, I love going for a walk and just it's that sense of sauntering. Um, you know, I love the fact that the word saunter comes from what pilgrims did when they went to the Holy Land. Uh, Sauntere right? is the Holy Land. Um, and so saunter is the kind of just to to, to walk wow. uh, in a way that allows you to kind of be nourished, I suppose, by what is around you and to take in your surroundings and, and to, to reflect on them. For me, when I run, that's when I process or pray. I never used to run. I took up running in 2018. One Thursday, I was on holiday. One Thursday, I thought, you know, I'm going to go buy a pair of trainers. So I went and bought a pair of trainers, the cheapest trainers in the shop, and I signed myself up for park run. And I didn't, I'm not having run since I left high school a long time ago, turned up at my local park run on a Saturday morning and thought, right, let's do this. In, in true Amanda fashion, let's do this. No training, nothing, no preparation, don't do preparation. Turn up, you run You just had a pair of shoes. <laughs> The pair of shoes, that was it, <laughs> run 5K. And and I ran and walked 5K in like, I don't know, 35 minutes, something. And I thought, that's, you know, other people said to me, that's really good. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's it not, is, yeah. that's rubbish. No, 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 that's really, really good. Yeah, totally. I'm like, right, okay. See what it's called, couch to 5K, Amanda. There's meant to be something in between. It's not meant to be that you get <laughs> off your couch and you run five kilometers. <laughs> can't listen to music when I run. For me, I run and I love to hear the birds around me. I love to hear the wind in the trees. I love, I actually love to hear the sound of my feet hitting the ground. And I love to hear the sound of my heartbeat. I can't run to music. And so for me, it's about being in tune with my body mm. um, and allowing my mind the freedom to actually go and process whatever it is that it needs to process. Mm. It gives my mind the freedom because actually my body is busy. And my body knows what it's doing. And, I, and it, as I run, I begin to listen to the different parts of my body. And I think, oh, my shoulders are really tight this morning. And, and so you begin to loosen your shoulders and, and you, you, know, you feel a tightness. And again, breathing into it and letting that tightness come out and, and just allowing my body to work and, mm. and my heart to pump and to find my breath and, and just give my mind the freedom to go wherever it wants to to sort out the stuff that it needs to sort out and to pray through whatever it needs to pray through. I asked Amanda about what she gets out of yoga. Getting the pose and then I have to count the breaths through the pose. And so actually for once, my mind and my body and my spirit are one mm. and are connected in doing one thing together in complete balance. In ministry, I talk a lot, well, when I'm training my students and things, I talk a lot about presence, about being present. And I suppose in yoga, 
I'm present, but I'm not because actually my mind and my body and my spirit are so engaged in that one action that although I'm present, I'm only present to myself. I'm, I'm so focused on what my being is doing that actually everybody else in that room is somewhere else. For me, I'm connected to God in that too. Because at the end of the practice, the yoga instructor that I have always says, you know, and thank yourself for practicing. Actually, I do. I give myself a pat, but I also thank God in that moment mm. for actually giving me the body and the mind and the spirit that can practice as well. And, and to actually just have that sense of peace and renewal, actually, that comes from, from that connection, that interconnectedness of body, mind and spirit for that hour that I do yoga, that I practice. I don't do anything else that gives me that sense of um, peace and actually uh, uh, su such restorative peace. Mm. Um, you know, again, it's it's that sense of flow. It's very similar to to when 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 I'm running and I have and I don't always have that sense of flow when I'm running, but every so often I just get it. And body, mind, and spirit are again connecting. Mm. Um, and I, I love kayaking as well, and I love being out on the water. And just that sense of being at one with the boat, at one with the movement and having balance and just that sense of, again, connectedness and, and just basking in the glory and the beauty of creation around me. And, and I think all of these things for me are such spiritual things where, you know, I love being active. I, have, I, I just am and I'm, I'm an active person. I go hill walking and I, I love standing at the top of a mountain and just experiencing that rush of adrenaline that's brought me there and being there in that moment and just experiencing the glory of creation all around me. You know, for me, some of those moments are more spiritual than, than being in church. You know, they, they're right up there. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're moments when God feeds my soul. Amanda and I talked about the strain of the pandemic on our minds at the moment, and she spoke about something that helped her last autumn. Um, my mood as we were coming out of summer seemed to plummet because I just thought this is going to be such a long winter. Mm. And I could sense myself just kind of, just getting really quite despondent about the thought of winter. And I thought, I need to, I need to do something here because otherwise I'm really going to struggle. And then during September, I did a challenge for British Red Cross um, for miles, it's called Miles for Refugees, and I signed up to do 109 miles um, over the course of 30 days in September to raise money for the work that British Red Cross do with refugees. And the 109 miles was significant because it was the distance between Cali and London that refugees make when when they leave Cali. And so I signed up for that, thinking, you know. 109 miles, that's fine. You know, I read, I run 5K a week, I walk the dog every day, but then when you break it down, actually 109 miles is quite a lot. And so over the course of 30 days, um, what I ended up doing was I ended up running twice a week, which I'd never done before. So I was suddenly doing kind of two runs a week and and and, and I was having to walk for at least 5K um, most days. And, and I did a couple of longer hill walks and things at weekends and things like that. But I got my 109 miles. But what I discovered, so this started out as, as a charity challenge just to raise money. Mm. Um, and, but what, what happened for me in that month was that I got, my life was transformed by it. My mood was transformed mm. by it. I got such, you know, I, I could see the physical and the mental benefits of having done that. Even just for 30 days, I thought, 
I'm not going back. I'm not going back to getting to that point where I'm like, oh, I can't really be bothered going out today. Oh, I'll not bother. You know, I'm tired. I'll not do it. Um, and since then, I've been running twice a week and walking for at least 30 minutes every day. So I'm not doing 109 miles every month, but I am, you know, I'm, I'm making a conscious effort to exercise and to be outdoors because I know how much it feeds me. Uh, and I know, I know that I need that, that outdoor connection and that physical kind of connection, that mental space. Um, it, it's, it's my breathing space. And so I know how important it is to me. And, and, and so I've got back out there. I'm thinking back to what you said um, earlier on, Amanda, when you were talking about the idea of people finding what makes them tick, you know, and I was thinking that this time of pandemic has been a time where, you know, everything's been up in the air and, and maybe some of us have, have had our hand forced and not been able to do what we have been doing or had to take on new roles. You know, there's been a huge upset in the economy and people having to try different things. And so there may be some kind of cross-pollination or, or happy accidents that have come from that, you know, people discovering a new side to themselves and so on. But but for people who are listening who are thinking, like, I don't have my groove, you know, I don't know what that is, you know, when you're talking about the flow state and I've, you know, I don't feel that. Are there ways, do you think, that we can help? And maybe it is partly about that physical sense of, of approaching the issue as a mind and body and breath whole situation. But are there any kind of suggestions you'd give to people who are in that kind of crossroads place of thinking like, I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know what I want to be doing next. Just try different things. Don't be afraid to try them. Um, you know, I would never have thought I was going to be a minister. And yet it was only when the opportunity kind of fell into my lap and I finally gave into it that I did. And I discovered that actually it, it made me sing. Um, it made my heart sing. And I suppose it's just, it's about being open. You know, and for me as a person of faith, it's about looking at where God is and where God's inviting me to go and kind of sensing that and being willing to go there. Um, and sometimes he has to scream and shout at me and kick me and drag me and pull me <laughs> for 20 years. Um <laughs> You know, some, sometimes I'm stubborn. Sometimes I choose not to listen. Um, but I'm so glad finally that actually I did mm. and, and that I got that opportunity. And, and I would just encourage, any, just, just keep being faithful and just keep being open to, to trying new things and, and don't listen to those voices that tell you you can't do it. Mm. Wherever they come from, whether it's, whether it's the own voice, the critic inside of you, or, you know, somebody else, unless they've got really good reason. Yeah, but, but don't be afraid to try things, just try new things. I'd said to you before that we might have a wee, uh, very quick look at Philippians 4 and this word rejoicing, because this is something that, that came up for me when I was preparing for this evening. And I was thinking back to uh, Barra, because I know uh, you know, you you lived there, and uh, I I don't know the veracity of this, but um, I've visited Barra a couple of times, and the thing they tend to say to to visitors um, with the Church of Scotland that's on Barra is that there's no windows along one side, and that the reason for that is so that the Protestants don't see the Catholics having fun, and I think there is this kind of uh, you know this. Um, uh, kind of weight in Presbyterianism and, and, and sometimes a kind of austere, you know, there, there's almost a sense of um, 
being defined in opposition um and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing and you know the the church came out of discussion and argument and and this process of kind of reawakening and rediscovery and, and what have you and, and there maybe is an importance and a, a kind of even a, a stylistic merit to that focus and, and everything but but quite often you know, the church of scotland has been quite dour you know and not really a a place of rejoicing and a place that sees the mind and body as something that's together you know the, there's this uh, focus sometimes on the cerebral and when you were talking before about you know not imagining yourself in the role when you were there at new college and seeing other would-be ministers you know do you think things are changing um and do you think um and, and to go to Philippians 4, you know, in, in verse 4, where Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And that's just something so embodied about that, so holistic. Um, so... Yeah, where, where do you think we're at in the Church of Scotland at the moment with this mind-body thing? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just if you could answer in 60 seconds or less. <laughs> I think things are changing. I mean, I, I love it now when somebody says to me, you're not, you don't, you're not really like a minister. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I broke the mould. Um, you know, because I think we have to, we have to shake off this idea that we are, you know, like holy wallies clear, you know, that we're austere and doer and, um, you know, holier than thou, all self-righteous and kind of mm. put everybody else down. There's no place for that. Um, you know, I mean, Jesus throughout his ministry, Jesus talks about love, loving one another. Paul, throughout his letters, talks about love, about loving one another one another and the importance of love you know let let your conversations be seasoned with salt let let there be grace among you i think as christians whether we're whether we're church of scotland whether we're roman catholic whether whether we're baptist whatever i think as christians we have to engage with god we have to engage with with where god is inviting us to be mm. we have to engage with whom god is inviting us to engage with um, there are people crying out all across our country, all across our world um, for love and, and for justice and for peace mm. and for hope and for security. All of these things that, that God can give. For me, the church exists to, to bless its community. We're called mm. to be, we're, we're blessed to be a blessing. You know, we, we are the light um, to our community. We, we, uh, we're to minister God's love, not just me as a minister, but my whole, you know, the congregation of which I am a part. We're called to minister God's love, to minister God's grace, to minister God's healing, to minister, you know, the message of, of new life in the midst of the brokenness of this life. Mm -hmm. We're called to minister that to the communities that we live in. Um, and if we're not doing that, then what are we doing? You know, that, that's, that's, we're called into being not so that we exist and we go to heaven, but actually we're called into being to transform the world. We're called into mm. being as church to be the body of Christ, to bring that love and that grace and that, that message of renewal to the people around about us, to minister it to them. 
um, you know, we're, we're called as church into the mission of God. We're part of the mission of God, part of the breath of God. Um, and we're called into that breath to be one with that mission. I think it's really important now, you know, more than ever, that actually, especially coming out of pandemic um, and emerging, I think so many people, you know, we talked about the uncertainty and, and, and all the rest. And I think, you know, there's been so much loss over this time and there's real opportunities to be able to engage with our communities and, and create space for our communities mm. to, to come together and to lament and to celebrate, you know, to lament what we've lost and to celebrate um, the new life that we're kind of being offered to begin. So here's the takeaway. When it comes to finding out who you are, give your mind a chance. Be open. Try new things. Seek those moments of flow state where you can be entirely in the moment. That place where you don't have to wear lots of different hats. Where you can just be you, bareheaded before the universe. Get moving, and in all sorts of ways, different kinds of movement that do different things to your breath and that allow you to think differently. Be a blessing to others and find yourself in the midst of that blessing. Thanks to Amanda, and join me for episode three, where I'll be exploring mind, body, and breath with a triathlon competing yoga teacher. But for now, it's time to get up and make myself a snack. My mind, body, and breath will thank me for moving, for shaking things up. Maybe I should step away from the trusty toaster and instead slice up a melon and embrace the mess and possibilities that come with it. And in the simple act of bringing mind, body, and spirit together in a moment of nourishment, realize that I'm part of something bigger and see where it takes me. For I can use that energy and go for a little walk and begin to realize that, as Amanda would say, I'm in the movement of something else. This podcast was written and produced by me, James Cathcart. And thanks to Mark Russell for the brilliant music featured in this episode. Thanks for listening.